Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. So we are looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, before we get into that, I'm really happy to have the Union Gospel Mission truck out there. That's our... One of our great ministries to be a partner with in Fort Worth, and I think Don Schisler, who is their president and CEO, is in our actually in our service today. And I know don't know exactly where he's at, but there he is, right there. Don, it's great to have you. We're really really glad to have you. Uh, and and over the years that we've done this, it has become really clear that uh, how important it is uh, to provide them with. Uh, the medicine that we do. And so if you uh, weren't able to do it this week, you have next week to do that. So as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching us uh, what it means to be a good person and what it looks like to live a good life. And uh, essentially what he has said in that is a kind of a picture, probably through chapter 5, I'll probably show it every week, Because Jesus is trying to say in this is that there are these external laws, but being a good person means more than just not doing these things. Two other things. It has to do with what's in your heart, because what's in your heart matters. So long before you ever cross that line, there are issues in your heart that have to be dealt with. That's where Jesus, as our king, is saying he wants to focus. And if you're going to do more than this, then you're going to have to, you're going to value people at a far greater level. And so you can see what Jesus is trying to do. There's something in our heart that has to be transformed to be a good person. And to live a good life, you've got to value people far greater than you ever thought. It's that sort of basic. That's what a kingdom heart does. So once the heart is filled with God's love, as we looked at last week, and then love for those around us, it sort of makes little room for for sin and evil. It enhances relationships. transforms us emotionally, ridding us of anger and hatred and revenge, making us compassionate and forgiving and loving. And as we'll see today, it transforms us sexually, calling us to a whole new depth of purity. As the text was read, I was thinking to myself, if you're a guest today, uh, what can I say? What can I say? You have adultery, you have lust, you have mutilation, and you have hell. You get it all. You get it all today in three or four verses. Um, And you might think to yourself, well, uh, that's one of the reasons I didn't go to church to begin with. Uh, It's because (laughs) of what was just read there. You know, like it sounds like people who desire sex go to hell. Uh, And that's not exactly right. So actually, I'm glad you're here. 
Because here's what I think you'll find, hopefully over the next couple weeks as we address this, that what Jesus says about sex and sexuality resonates with the deepest part of who you are, if you're honest. And it accounts for society's struggle to manage the mystery and the wonder and the dangers and the damage of sex. This past week, it was Wednesday, November 3rd, article in The Atlantic came out. Sophie Gilbert wrote, uh, where sex positivity falls short. She looks at net, three shows on Netflix and assesses them. One of them's called Sex Education, one's called Sex Unzipped, and the other is called Sex, Love, and Goop. And she, in the article, sort of interweaves issues going on in all three and wrestles with the attempt of the shows to express this incredible freedom with sex of all kinds and this anything-goes pleasure-seeking which attempts to sort of sidestep shame involved in it. Meanwhile, she's saying, all hell is breaking loose in these people's lives, personally, relationally, emotionally, socially. And she's not a, this person is not a Christian. If you read the article, you wouldn't get that feeling at all. Uh, but here's what she writes. Because of sex positivity's well-intended focus on embracing openness and negating shame, it can exclude nuance and sidestep the murkier questions of power and intimacy and trust and trauma that people inevitably, inevitably bring with them into any sexualized situation. It's easier for popular culture to present sex as a comedic smorgasbord of erotic experiences, outlandish and heartburn-inducing, than it is to wade into the realm of the unpleasant and the regrettable. And she goes on to say, in these series, it seems that sex is a kind of eroticized trampoline park, bouncing around cheerfully with no sense, this is the line that hit me, with no sense of the deeper kinds of connection they might be missing. I thought that was a pretty astute article. And it may very well be uh, that you sense that too. Something's missing in all the freedom of it. Maybe that's exactly your experience. And I think it's what Jesus is getting at. And what I wrote down after I read that article and studied this text was... was we don't seem to be able to grasp why this extremely special and immensely pleasurable human act should have any boundaries. And yet, without them, it wreaks havoc on souls and societies. We don't know how to connect these two realities. Seems like it ought to be free, but it's destroying people. And so we come to Matthew and our guide into eternal living, into kingdom living, 
says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. So adultery is the seventh commandment. It also, like murder, made it into the top ten, which I think uh, is probably wise that it made it into the top ten. And what happens as soon as you get to the concept of adultery, sex and marriage are sort of blended together. And from a divine and biblical perspective, sex cannot be separated from marriage. That means wherever Jesus is going to go from here, marriage has to be included in the conversation, no matter what he's going to do. Sex is either solidifying a covenant or it's breaking one. The Bible has no other options, no other place. Sex sits in the Bible. So what I need to do is just very quickly establish that so you understand uh, where Jesus is going to take this. Now, you have Genesis 19 to 24. This is where uh, God, after creating Adam, creates Eve and brings them together. And you remember the text uh, calls the deep sleep to fall on Adam, took one of his ribs and then closed it up and then formed the woman and then brought her to the man. And then the man said when he saw her, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. So let's just look at that for a second. And all I want to point out is what God was getting at at the beginning that establishes how sex and marriage are going to be viewed throughout the entire Bible. And you have just focus on the word cleave because this becomes the sort of the first and most profound statement about marriage. You cleave to one another, and the word cleave is a covenant. It's used in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and 11 on what a covenant is, what an oath is. Okay? It's the highest level of commitment. The kind of commitment that instinctively has permanence to it. The word cleave suggests permanence and exclusivity. I think Willard was the one who said, because we're finite, marriage has to be exclusive because you're not capable of giving yourself to more than one at this level, which is a great statement. Because you're finite, And if you think you can do that, you must think you're infinite. So the two become one flesh. Now think about this. The uniting, this union, when it happens, you morph into some kind of a single entity in marriage. And you're changed forever. That's why Mark adds to the two shall become one flesh. He adds this line in Mark chapter 10, 
um, like seven and eight, he says, the two are no longer one. I mean, they're, they're not themselves. You are two no more. And then sex comes at the end of that, which is really here. Two people uniting physically. Sex then becomes, in God's mind and in his creation, the demonstrative visualization of that unity. An act that not only pictures the unity, mystically contributes to it because something more than my body is given in physical intimacy. Something, there is a greater exchange than physical in sex. And Scripture always puts it right here. It's the last part of the process, always, in the context of marriage. Move it out of that spot, you have damage. You are violating yourself. You're violating covenant. You're violating everything else. So marriage will become, this is the reason, by the way, this is the reason marriage signifies more than just human relationship in the Bible. It's the only reason you can take it farther. Because marriage will become something God uses to describe the relationship he, he wants with human beings. And so it starts with human beings in marriage, but it ends in marriage. You know, the last couple of chapters in the Bible end with marriage. But a different kind of marriage, a spiritual marriage. In Revelation, where the bride and the groom come together. And he's prepared and we become his wife. And so physical and human marriage here signifies something greater. Why? Because it can. Because there is something mystical about the physical nature of it. There is something metaphysical, something spiritual, something beyond this life, something beyond this reality. And that's why you have a text like, um, well, let's start here. Look at this. Same verses in Genesis 2. You leave your father and mother and you cleave to your wife and you become one flesh. And then look, notice what he says here. This is a mystery. There is something mystical about one flesh. And here's the difference between the world and Christianity. It sees something mystical about it. And so what you have to ask yourself is, is there any proof of that? I've had sex before. Is there something else going on? Is there something bigger than that going on in the world? And maybe that's the reason why it's not working, this free-for-all, because there is something mystical about it. And it's profound, and it's so profound, Paul doesn't even elaborate on it, and I would imagine he probably thought to himself, I don't even know how to explain it, so I'm not even going to try but it does refer to something greater, like Christ in the church. And that's why you have 
Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. How do you defile the marriage bed? Well, any kind of sexual immorality or adultery. And so we've drawn this picture before. There's the marriage bed. You have fornication on this side. That's the word for sexual immorality. You have adultery on this side. Before you're married, after you're married, you can defile it. This is the space sex belongs in. And there's no other space, and that's a sacred space, and it's a safe space. That's it. That's the spot. And then Jesus, so you see why. Then what we're going to see now. Uh, Jesus links them. Just kind of like he did, remember, with anger. You start at murder and you go, I'd never do that. But then Jesus traces it all the way back to anger. There is no murder without anger. There is no adultery without lust. So this must be the beginning of the problems. Just like in anger. He links them together. And both of them have their reasons for being linked together. But when you get to this, what is he doing? He links sexual desire, lust, with relationship. Jesus does not allow your heart to exist in some unique, personal, private way that disconnects itself from people. Everything going on in your heart cannot be disconnected from relationship, from the personal side of things. If you do that, you will damage yourself and people. And Jesus will have none of that. You can't call yourself a good person and be, think you're living a good life if you think somehow you can separate those two things. So whatever Jesus is saying about all the things we're going to look at in Matthew 5, you can't do that. You can't say, well, I have this own internal private world that I live in. No. Can't do it. It's not disconnected. I'm going to try to show you why. Jesus is kind of understand why, what Jesus is not saying here. Jesus is not saying that sexual desire is a bad thing. And that in and of itself, sexual desire ends up being uh, evil. Nor is he saying sexual attraction is bad. I mean, just think about it. God created it. And there are some scriptures that we could study, and I thought about reading them, but I'd, I didn't want to go down the road of shock value here. Uh, but they're as sensual as anything you ever want to think. God created it in Genesis 1. And then in Genesis 2, some romantic side of God comes out. And there's this elaborate description of how Adam and Eve come together. Adam sings a poem. Uh, and then he leaves them naked. That's God. We'd have all said, would you put something on? We'd have all said that. Say what you want of him. He's not a prude. Now, even the language of the text suggests that uh, 
And we need to look at that, I think. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent. Uh, so let's, let's talk about that. What Jesus is essentially saying, this is the simplest way to communicate this. Uh, you used her visually. You used him visually. Imaginatively. You used them. Some fantasy, sexual act. And that is what crosses the line. And so when he says you've committed adultery with her already in his heart, he's essentially trying to say that the look wasn't essentially the problem. There was already a problem. Do you understand that? There's already a heart that has that. The look just opens the door. Uh, And so when he says that already in his heart, Jesus is saying two very important things we cannot miss. Number one. Sexual sin occurs without the physical act, obviously, and the heart is the problem. The eyes are not the problem. Now, with anger and desire both, with Jesus talks, you know, links together up here at the top, uh, both arousals, both sort of internal arousals, one anger, one sort of desire, one of this desire. Uh, we've learned that for the kingdom heart, something more powerful has to govern the thoughts and feelings and actions of a person. I cannot let, I cannot let, as we saw in our picture, I cannot let anger dictate my actions. I cannot let lust do that. I've got there's a desire that we're saying is not wrong, but once it turns here, what happens when it turns to lust? That's sort of what we're trying to get to the bottom of. Now, this is important to contemplate to understand what Jesus is saying. Because there's a value of people that anger and lust do not have. They do not value people. Not to the level Jesus wants us to. And let me just say something about anger and lust both. They're both hard to hide. They're both hard to hide. Somehow they show. They're inside, but they show. In other words, they affect me. They're hard to hide and easily acted upon, very easily acted upon. So to imagine that lust can just live in here all by itself and and it produces no actions that are negative is naive. So let me rehearse. let's, Let's compare the two. Remember we said last, a uh, couple weeks ago, just knowing someone is mad at me is hurtful, isn't it? You don't even have to be in their presence. You don't even need them to say anything to you. Just knowing they're mad at you affects you. It's interpersonal. It's living in his, somebody else's heart. It already affects me just knowing it. And 
if I get looked at with sort of an angry look, what, what happens to you? It makes you either feel bad or it makes you power up. A look is all you need. And so a kingdom heart gets angry less. Well, what about knowing when someone, what about, how does it feel when you know someone's attracted to you? It affects you. And just a look, just a look can instigate. Isn't that how most of them start? Now, the look, the notice of someone attractive is not evil, Hillside. It's not any look. It's look with a lustful intent. You're not going to not see attractive people. It's not gonna ha- that, that's not happening. That's not the problem. But let's not kid ourselves. This is really important for us. Let's not kid ourselves that a look is a public act. And it does impact personal relations and public in public. Now, I'm going to prove that to you, even though you've already, you already know it in your heart. You know this to be true. So walk with me through it. Just sort of analyze this this week. People notice when you look. And think about this. It affects the person you don't notice. Have you ever, have you ever been with someone who gets looked at and you don't? All the time. That's right. <laughs> Many of us know the feeling. Ain't nobody learning at me. You feel that, and it affects you. It's just a look. Didn't even come your way. And if you're the one doing the looking, it might affect the person you're with. Which one of us in here hasn't said to someone, what are you looking at? Uh, When I was a kid, I don't know that I've ever said, I don't know if I've ever talked about this. When I was a kid, uh, and single parents, I had my mom raising us. Uh, We were young, and uh, wherever we went, my mom was an attractive gal. And she got attention wherever we went. And I can remember being in grocery stores and seeing men. And I was a, I was a kid. And seeing men's reaction to my mother and watching her walk away. And I would walk behind my mom and get, get in front so they couldn't see her behind. I felt like I was the protector of the family. But even as a kid, I noticed, I couldn't explain all the issues at the time, 
but I understood that dynamic, and there was something not right about it. It didn't sit well, and I was a kid. And I remember taking up my place behind my mother. A lot of places we went. So people notice it. And you know, the second thing I, I jotted down is it can, it can flatter when you get a look. It can make you feel good. It can also disgust you. You ever been disgusted by a look? Maybe you have been uh, flattered by a look or disgusted by a look. Oh, it affects you. The look affects you. Nothing's happened. Just the look. We use that look often to get attention. And how many times have you looked and looked until the other person noticed that you looked? Because you wanted them to notice that you were looking. Oh, there's a lot going on in the look. And of course, it can open the door. And if you let that look linger, all that has to happen, all that has to happen is the circumstances just have to arrange themselves in such a way that you can walk through that door. The desire isn't as private as we think it is. Lust will make the look more than noticing. Noticing is not the problem. Looking with the intent of lusting is. And so a kingdom heart just looks different. It looks differently. It doesn't see the same. So with anger, a look can incite, and with lust, a look can seduce. And a kingdom heart looks different for two reasons. I'm going to give you two. Number one, because you're not desperate for attention. If you need to look, or you need the look, something's broken. Something's awry in your heart. And Jesus is saying that a kingdom heart doesn't need that kind of attention to make itself feel good. That's an unloved heart. That's a needy, that's a needy heart. That's a heart desperate enough to act in a way outside of what your moral reality is. So the first thing you ought to think about is, why do I need to either look or be looked at? It's a desperate heart. The second thing is, I don't want to use my eyes to cause a problem, and I could easily use my eyes to cause a problem. Just like in anger, I can incite anger in you. I can also incite lust in you and get you imagining things. 
And so what Jesus is essentially doing in connecting these is saying, you, you cannot have some internal kind of private life separated from relationship because you're either imagining people using them in your mind, or you're actually using them physically. Either one of those is off and out of boundaries for the kingdom heart. They are connected. Sexual desire is personal. That's what the link is doing. It is relational by nature. I read this book when we were in the Hebrew series. This was got through this very, very philosophical investigation of sexual desire by uh, Roger Scruton. In fact, that's the title of the book. Uh, And what he does is he takes on the idea that sexual desire is just a natural instinct. No, 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 no. This This is just what happens inside of me. It's normal and that kind of thing, which society definitely does. Uh, Just sort of this animalistic instinct that you can't control. You might not be able to control a certain look, a noticing, but you can control the intent of the heart. And here's what he kind of argues that sexual desire cannot exist without built-in limits. Even it needs built-in limits or else it will go way too far. Kind of like anger does. Lust will immediately take you places and it needs built-in limits before you ever do anything. And so he says, even desire must have boundaries. Because it's personal. And then he writes this, puts anger and lust together. Anger and lust are only felt by persons. Making it immediately personal. And toward persons. Sexual morality cannot be separated from the desire or the act without destroying its distinct character. That's what Jesus is getting at. And so he argues, you don't need God to see that sexual desire is not morally neutral. And because of that, the only rightful place it can exist is in marriage. It intrinsically demands institutional conditions. It is inherently nuptial. Otherwise, you will use people. And you will use this for a million reasons, to get affirmation, security, to stroke your ego, uh, to to find connection and community, and you'll ruin people. You'll put way too much pressure on people. We've done it to each other. Absurd expectations, and the need never gets met, no matter how far you go. That ought to tell you something. It only gets worse. To indulge in it only gets worse. If people's lives got better because of pornography, we'd be showing it everywhere. And that's the reason why Jesus 
says what he says about it. Because anytime sex is detached from the full commitment of marriage, which is the total giving of yourself in a permanent, exclusive, covenant kind of relationship, it becomes self-serving. This is about me. Same as this. The same. That's not the orientation of the kingdom heart. That's why I was reading back through mere Christianity on marriage. and Listen to what C.S. Lewis wrote. He said, we use a most unfortunate idiom when we say of a lustful man prowling the streets that he wants a woman. And C.S. Lewis writes, strictly speaking, a woman is just what he does not want. He wants a pleasure for which a woman happens to be the necessary piece of apparatus. Works both ways. You just use people. So in the context of a covenant, sex becomes a sacrament. It visualizes some invisible reality. And then it becomes, I think C.S. Lewis is the one who said this too, a commitment apparatus. Something Something you give to someone that says, I'm giving you all of me. Not just the physical part of me. If you only give the physical part of you and only take physical from other people, you haven't given yourself to someone. That's what Jesus despises. He hates seeing human beings torn apart by that kind of selfishness. And that's why C.S. Lewis says this same, same book. The monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all the other kinds of union which were intended to go along with it and make up a total union. So this is the reason why the delight of sex you've been married for any length of time, gets better with age, even though your body is deteriorating. Your body doesn't look near as good. But the sex is better. This is an incredible thing. That's because there's something deeper and and intimate that has developed over time. That makes it better. You have to be more careful, too. I'll just say that. You have to be more careful. (laughs) You get hurt. (laughs) To rip sex from the full self-giving is dehumanizing to Jesus. It's depersonalizing. That's why the word desire here with, a des- with that kind of desire. It's an interesting word. You find it a roughly a little over 60 times 
I think, in the scripture. And it's not usually associated with sex itself. It's usually associated with idolatry and greed. It's a, it's a lust is, is this insatiable need that makes you worship yourself and your longings to the point where you'll sacrifice other people to meet it. It's a greed. And it's self-destructive. A few months ago, I, I sat with two married couples. In the first one, he had committed adultery. In the second one, which was minutes later, minutes later, she caught him using pornography again. It's a different couple. I sat through both of those back to back. It would be very, very difficult for me to try to distinguish between the pain in, that, in each woman, even though one of them had not been physical. They were both dehumanizing. The anger, the humiliation, the sheer betrayal was, in, was impossible for me to communicate how it felt. To them and almost couldn't differentiate the damage. And on both of them, the future was questionable. Jesus is saying, kingdom heart has a depth of purity. It's less self-seeking. It is oriented toward giving itself, not taking. There is enough wrong that indirectly proves this to be true when you consider the damage that sexual abuse or failure of any sort brings to people. That's always more than physical. That's a signal that it transcends that physical. The wonder of this profound mystery, as Yancey calls it, you know what Yancey calls this whole sex and intimacy and marriage? An appetizer to quicken our desire for eternity. And probably nothing speaks louder to our culture's desire for something metaphysical, for something beyond this world, for something transcendent than its insatiable need for sex. Nothing speaks louder. G.K. Chesterton said, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. The Latin verb for sex 
Don't be scared means to cut off, sever. Because sexual impulses are a desire to unite, to reconnect what has been severed. That's the deepest picture you can have of the spiritual life and our disconnection from God and our longing for him. Nothing speaks louder than that. And until we find God and reconnect with him, we'll search in vain for personal satisfaction. We'll try to find it in a person. We'll try to find it in beauty. And in the process, we'll do unspeakable damage to ourselves and to others. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we'll stop there for today. And surely we have much to contemplate. Because we long for hearts that are pure, that don't use people. Father, surely someone in here might by your spirit be prompted to realize that they're longing for connection. Here is a longing for connection to you. And I pray they find that. In Jesus' name.